0: My brother says, Tina, let's be realistic. We're not coming back to East Palestine.
1: One year after a major train derailment, East Palestine, Ohio is exhausted and divided. We'll take you to the community to hear how it's changed. For Saturday, February 3rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll also talk to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about whether rail safety has improved a year after the East Palestine derailment. Also, how Iran may respond to U.S. airstrikes. And in South Carolina... Does character truly change America? Or does good policy change America? We'll hear how younger voters feel about President Biden and Democrats. And we'll look back at the underbelly of early 2000s pop culture.
2: There's this feeling that because the women I write about had chosen to be public figures, they were the ones committing an act of indecency against
3: us.
1: First news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. military launched additional retaliatory strikes on Iran-linked targets in Yemen. This comes a day after the U.S. struck targets in Iraq and Syria. Also, CENTCOM says U.S. forces today destroyed six Houthi anti-ship cruise missiles in Yemen in self-defense that were prepared to strike U.S. warships and commercial vessels traveling in the Red Sea. The military action comes in the wake of a drone attack attack That killed three American soldiers last Sunday at a remote base in Jordan. U.S. officials have emphasized a multi-tiered response to that. It's expected to include a range of actions and play out over time. And meanwhile, Iraq is lashing out at the United States for that series of strikes inside their country against Iran-backed militias. And Piers Jainaroff has more from Baghdad.
4: The Iraqi government is in a tough position because Iran-backed parties and militias are major political and security players. Government spokesman Basim al-Awadi called the strikes a blatant aggression, which were driving Iraq to the abyss. He said U.S. forces in Iraq had now become a threat to the country's stability. Iraq declared three days of mourning for the 16 fighters and civilians it said were killed in the attacks. Jane Araf, NPR News, Baghdad. The South Carolina
3: Democratic presidential primary is underway with President Biden on the ballot. South Carolina Public Radio's Mayan Schechter reports it's the official first-in-the-nation Democratic primary. Voter Lee Monk says she voted for President Biden today because she wants to send a message to the rest of the country about her
5: home state. We care about this here. We're not all Trumpers. South Carolina Democrats say they're encouraged by early turnout. In particular, they say they're encouraged by black voter turnout, key to Biden's success four years ago. Voters like Kyan Jones, who also backed Biden.
6: We often see the challenges uh, on a day-to-day basis uh, that face us, and I think voting is one of the most simple measures you can do Uh, as an individual.
5: Polls close at 7 o'clock Eastern. From PR News, I'm Mayon Schechter in Columbia, South Carolina.
3: California is bracing for a winter storm that's expected to bring heavy rain and the threat of dangerous flash flooding heavy mountain snows, and strong winds. Landslides are also possible. Evacuation orders are out for parts of Ventura County. The National Weather Service says the rain today will intensify through tomorrow morning with prolonged periods of moderate to heavy rain throughout Central California. The storm system then moves east into the Sierra where winter storm warnings have been issued. Forecasters predict extremely heavy snow over the mountains with four to six feet expected. This is NPR.
4: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Newton students will be back in the classroom on Monday after missing two weeks of classes during the teacher strike. The school committee and teachers union reached a tentative contract agreement last night, which ended the job action. Superintendent Anna Nolan wants to work with teachers to do what's best for students. The new contract agreement includes a cost of living increase for teachers and better pay for paraprofessionals. The man who helped Massachusetts respond in the early days of the AIDS crisis is being remembered as a pioneering activist. Larry Kessler died on Thursday. Kessler co-founded the AIDS Action Committee of Massachusetts. Kessler was 81. The interim head of the Massachusetts State Police says he is deeply troubled by the federal charges that four current and retired troopers are facing. Prosecutors say they were involved in a scheme to issue commercial driver's licenses in exchange for goods or services. Colonel John Mons says an internal audit identified the need for modernizing the unit that handles licenses. We
7: have since
5: implemented numerous reforms that have significantly improved the unit's efficiency, effectiveness, and accountability.
4: Mon says the state police must earn and maintain the public's trust. Meta co-founder Mark Zuckerberg and hedge fund leader Bill Ackman have failed to get their candidates on the ballot for Harvard's Board of Overseers. The contenders are advocating for free speech and academic rigor. The election for one of Harvard's two governing bodies will be held in April. As it celebrates 75 years of service, the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts is holding an event tonight at the MGM Music Hall in Boston. The mentoring group's president and CEO, Mark O'Donnell, says their big night celebration is a tribute to the community.
2: The fact that it's gone for 25 years and continues to be one of the largest events in the city is just says something about uh, the community around us.
4: And a Quincy grandmother will be honored tonight for raising her six grandchildren with the help of Big Brothers Big Sisters. 38 degrees at 5.06.
8: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kresge Foundation. Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity.
1: More at kresge.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow in East Palestine, Ohio and I'm standing along the railroad tracks where a year ago, a Norfolk Southern freight train derailed. 38 cars derailed and 20 of those cars were carrying hazardous materials. One of those materials was vinyl chloride. This led to big environmental problems, and in the days after the crash, there was this big plume of smoke when they decided to vent off and burn off the vinyl chloride. This became a national story, and it became really a spotlight on something that we're seeing happening just about every other day across the country, and that's freight rail derailments. And this is still an active construction site. Norfolk Southern has been doing cleanup just about ever since.
9: We've got our two sets of tracks, if you look on down the tracks here there's a white sign on the left of the uh north track that's actually the sign for the pa border so that's about where we are uh, in reference to pennsylvania and ohio
1: this is christopher Hunsicker, norfolk southern's regional manager of environmental operations he's giving us a tour of the cleanup site that he's been in charge of since the immediate wake of the derailment
9: so when we got here right then uh you know there were cars on fire you know that was the, still the immediate response it was getting that situation under control controlling that hazard. Since then, Norfolk Southern has spent more than $800 million
1: on cleanup, clearing away the rail cars, assessing the environmental damage, removing all the dirt doused with toxic chemicals. And now the final phase, replacing what it dug up with clean soil and limestone. All of this under the close scrutiny of state and federal environmental officials. Generally, what did you do with the contaminated soil that you dug out?
9: So all the contaminated soil has been shipped off to licensed landfills.
1: Hunsaker says right now the cleanup will likely continue through the summer, the exact end date will be determined by data and environmental regulators. The EPA says the air and water are safe in East Palestine. That's according to regular testing of both the town's water supply and private wells, plus more than 45,000 air quality samples over the past year. Though, some outside experts question whether the tests are sensitive enough and many people in the town say they felt sick in the wake of the derailment. We met up with Hunsaker at the staging area for the cleanup operation. It's a gas station called Lakes. The pumps and the station's small convenience store are fenced off. The place looked very different a year ago.
0: So I worked in there and we set the gas pumps and we had a little beer cave in there and sell snacks and chips and cigarettes and stuff like that.
1: This is Christina Dilworth. She lives about a quarter mile from the crash and worked at Lakes. She's lived in East Palestine since she was 10. The day of the derailment, Dilworth got off work around 5.30 and went to her granddaughter's basketball game two towns over. Once they heard about the crash, they started driving back.
0: Right as you start up this crest, and it's still like seven or eight miles away maybe, you could just see East Palestine, like this giant flame.
1: You saw, because it was dark, so you just yeah. saw the brightness we of a saw big this, fire.
0: Yeah, this big fire.
1: A year later, we visit Dilworth at her mother's old home. It's a two-minute drive from the crash site. Morning. Hey,
7: I'm
0: Scott. Brandy's policy. Welcome, everybody. <laughs>
1: Dilworth's mom lived here for decades and made it the extended family's central hub. She died about two years ago, but Dilworth wanted to keep that tradition going. There are photos everywhere.
0: Okay, my daughter Brandy, this is Raya and Aubrey.
1: Including a big one over the couch showing Dilworth surrounded by grandchildren. And when was this picture taken?
0: Thanksgiving. It's nice. At the hotel. So, time's kind off.
1: <laughs> the hotel. Dilworth spent most of the past year living in a nearby Best Western. She says she started to feel sick. She just didn't feel comfortable living so close to the crash site. Norfolk Southern paid for Dilworth and others to relocate. And When Dilworth first got to the Best Western in May, she says there was a nice community of East Palestine people.
0: You know, we'd play cards at night and we thought this, yeah, it's almost like being on a little mini vacation. Well, then after a few months, it gets like, okay, I've had enough. I'm ready to go home. But we just kept thinking, okay, Norfolk's going to get this all cleaned up. We're going to go home. And like I said, I didn't think that May was gonna turn into December.
1: Norfolk Southern announced in December it would stop paying for relocation around the one year mark. The company says about 30 households are still using it. At its peak, around 200 were. So now Dilworth is back in East Palestine. She tried to invite her family back to her mom's house.
0: So I kind of talked to everybody and I'm like, okay, the house is clean. You guys wanna, you know, everybody, they're not coming back. Nobody in your family wanted to? No. My brother says, Tina, because we all got together in Colombiana. And they said, Tina, let's be realistic. We're not coming back to East Palestine.
1: Dilworth accepts that eventually she'll likely relocate. She joined a class action lawsuit and says she hopes that 10 years down the line, that will have helped her start over.
0: It'd be wonderful 10 years from now that, okay, everybody's healthy. Nobody got sick. Nobody got cancer. But we don't know that. I don't have 10 years to sit around and wait. Yeah. You know, I've got... These babies that I want to enjoy their basketball games. I try to go to everything that I can, and I don't have 10 years to think, am I going to be suffering from cancer?
1: She's the first to acknowledge that a lot of people in East Palestine don't feel this way.
0: But I try not to talk to too many people because I was at the hotel for a long time, and then I did get criticized when I was at the hotel, and now I'm back. And I do feel like some people do avoid me.
1: Many people have moved on and think she and others who are still worried are exaggerating or trying to get more money from Norfolk Southern.
0: I mean, I'm just going about my life now. I go to my granddaughter's basketball games and I can tell there's some people that walk by and, hi, "Hi." to the person beside me and they won't speak to me. And I'm like, I don't care.
1: A year later, Norfolk Southern trains clang through East Palestine several times a day. There are all sorts of signs in front of homes and businesses. E.P. Strong, we are East Palestine, get ready for the greatest comeback in American history. But many people in East Palestine are sick of talking about the derailment. A lot of people declined to talk to producer Erica Ryan and me. One morning we're sitting in a donut shop called Sprinkles. The TV on the wall is showing a national news report about East Palestine and a woman at the table next to us starts criticizing President Biden, as well as the media coverage of the derailment. So naturally, I went over and introduced myself.
10: I'll tell you what, I appreciate all the people that come here from the news too, but I don't like the ones that get on there and publicly gripe about things. You know, there's nothing to gripe about. If nobody was here helping us and we had nobody to help clean this place up, I could see them griping. But that is not the case. They've been here since day one. I can't see anybody else putting that much energy into some place where they don't even live. Joyce
1: Davis lives in East Palestine and witnessed the derailment. She even has a cell phone video from that night.
10: Oh my God, look at that.
1: Davis lives inside the initial evacuation zone and had to leave her house for five days. She took her dogs with her, but talked her way through roadblocks every day to go back and feed the rest of her brood of animals, which includes cats, snakes, and tarantulas, among other pets. Since then, she says she hasn't been worried. Her well water gets tested, and it's fine.
10: You can't spend your whole life worrying about what might happen 10 years down the road. You're going to lose 10 years of your life if you do that. They're doing their absolute best to make sure that doesn't happen. We live right up over the hill, not even a half a mile away from that train derailment site and i have many many outside kitty cats and not a one of them got sick over that
8: 80 percent of the people just want us to get move on try to come back to where we once were and then 10 percent you know just don't know what to think and the rest are just this was the worst thing that could ever happen to east Palestine. it's going to be devastating forever and we'll never get back from it so
1: that's trent conaway the mayor Dealing with this divide is his job.
8: It's been a very interesting year.
1: Conaway just won another term in office, though he says this will likely be his last.
8: It was just, it's like I've been living in a fog for a year. I'm not gonna lie.
1: Being mayor is actually a part-time job. His day job is hard too. He works at a nearby limestone mine.
8: I make big rocks, little rocks with explosives.
1: I asked Conaway what he makes of the divide
8: you know, people just don't know what to think. You know, we still have doubts and thoughts in our head too. Like what's going to happen in 15 years? Is there going to be a cancer cluster here and stuff like that? But I guess we won't truly know until it happens. That's why I wrote the letter to the president to come here, see for yourself. Do I support the president? No. Would I vote for the man again? No. But you need to come, you need to see what's going on here and, you know, see for yourself that, you know, you do have residents that are concerned about their future and the leader of the free world should step up and say, hey, we're gonna help take care of you.
1: Had you explicitly invited him before because that seemed to be a point of contention in the news over the last day or so? I mean, I never
8: officially invited him. I said he's more than welcome to come. I've always said from day one, I don't know what he's actually gonna do here. Now I think if anything, it would be just to prove to people that, hey, all your agencies are saying this is safe. Come here and you know put your money where your mouth is and prove that it is safe to be here. So
1: yeah, a year later, are things better or worse than you thought they'd be in the immediate aftermath of that crash? Uh, they're significantly better
8: than I thought it would be. Tell you what, February sixth, seventh of last year, I did not know if we'd even have a town this year. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty dark, especially when you know we chose to do the vent and burn. But I'd still do the same. So that was the safest thing to ensure the safety of our village residents.
1: And going back to that divide that we talked about, how do you as a leader in this village deal with that? How do you get the 10 and the 10 to stop walking past each other and and be in the same community again?
8: You just give them as many details and facts and figures as you can, and at some point there's not much you can do, but just hope that they see what – I don't want to say see what you're trying to – Put forward because you never want to, you know, indoctrinate anybody, you know, and try to put thoughts in somebody's head. You just you want them to make their own decisions. Um, I was scared. I mean, I was was just like anybody else. I mean, I'm a husband and a father, helping make a decision of you know what we're going to do in this town, and it it was rough. It was you know, I had thoughts too. Like, is this really what you know? Is this the right thing? Is this there's new ground for all of us.
1: This story was produced by Erica Ryan and edited by Tinbeat Ermias. Coming up, we'll talk to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg about East Palestine, as well as the broader question of rail safety. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
4: And this is 90.9 WBUR, where we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated but not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, WBUR.org. And stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs every Saturday night from 6 to 8. 37 degrees at 518 clear skies overnight and a stretch of sun ahead. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us.
9: WBUR supporters include Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu seo. And Becoming a Man at ART, a new play from acclaimed author P. Carl and Tony Award-winning director Diane Paulus starts February 16th. amrep.org.
3: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Pentagon says the U.S. and U.K. forces conducted an additional round of strikes against 36 Houthi targets across 13 locations in Yemen. This in response to the Houthis' continued attacks against naval and commercial vessels in the Red Sea. Voters in South Carolina are picking their nominee for president today the first for Democrats, after the Democratic National Committee changed its primary calendar to make South Carolina the first. And federal wildlife officials say they won't restore protections for gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains. Conservation groups say protections are needed because of wolf hunting in a number of states. The decision doesn't affect existing protections in 44 other states for gray wolves. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org.
1: It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It's been exactly one year since a freight train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, unleashing fiery plumes of toxic chemicals. While there were no casualties, the incident put a big spotlight on freight rail safety and how the government can better protect against accidents like this. That falls under the scope of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Since the derailment, he's been pushing for more action in Washington and urging Congress to pass a stalled safety bill. On All Things Considered, teams spent several days this week reporting in East Palestine. And the morning after we returned to Washington, we headed down to the Department of Transportation to talk to Buttigieg about it. I began the interview by asking about something that bothers a lot of people in East Palestine, the fact it's taken
9: President Biden more than a year to visit. Well, the president's going now to respond to the invitation that came from the community, but also directed his entire administration and this entire government from the beginning to be there every way that we can. And I think being there a year later is especially important to demonstrate that we're not forgetting, because a lot of the same members of Congress who were so quick to try to score political points over this a year ago Mm -hmm. are nowhere to be found while the railway safety act is still waiting its turn so let's talk
1: more broadly about derailments i'm sure you saw the headlines this week that despite this intense focus over the past
9: year derailments are actually up nationwide what's what's going on so there has been more and more volume on the rails and uh, as you said derailments have continued you know there was a time when this country tolerated multiple thousands of derailments per year now even after all the reforms that have happened over the years we're still standing at roughly a thousand a year that means every single day on average more than one derailment takes place and there's a broader issue here which is that there continue to be these safety issues and customers are not pleased with the service that they're getting from the railroads, and workers are angry at the railroads, and yet they are incredibly profitable, almost ridiculously profitable, which means that the only pressure they're going to get from shareholders is to keep it up.
1: Of the stuff in your control, there were a lot of regulation changes, a lot of voluntary agreements. I know you worked with unions, with the rail companies themselves. What's one aspect within your control that took place that you think was the most important over the past year?
9: Well, uh, I think the focused inspections have been very important because they can turn up specific issues. They've done tens of thousands of cars, tens of thousands of miles of track. The other one that I'm uh, very focused on right now is the minimum crew size rule. Right now, the railroad lobby is trying to make sure that they can have just one person Mm -hmm. on trains that could be miles long. Now, uh, a regulation to deal with this was actually initiated by the Obama administration halted by the trump administration we've renewed it under the biden administration and we're working to develop that but i also have to say the machinery of government on a new rule that complex could be accelerated dramatically by congress and it's one of the things in that railway act we talked to alan shaw the
1: the norfolk southern ceo about this this past summer and he was talking about you know Conductors who aren't on the trains. I forget the exact term he used, but he talked about, you know, these are people who have the same electronic readings, who just kind of drive along during a set period, and, and that's their zone, and then they can stay at their homes at night. And he was really talking this up. What's your view on that argument? Be- because the big rail companies have really pushed back on this, on this two crew minimum.
9: They see a future of one person, maybe even a crewless train. These trains are, again, a mile long, two miles long, three miles long, or more. If the companies believe that it makes sense to have people on the ground at at the places those trains go through, great, do both. It's not like we're commanding them to have hundreds of people on board these trains. We're saying, how about two? Just basic common sense to me says that you at least wanna have two people on board a train that might be carrying hazardous materials that might be going at a high speed through communities. And if there are other technologies or layers you wanna put on that, fine. But look, it's not like, they're having trouble staying in business as railroads <laughs> because mm-hmm. they, they need too many conductors. We're talking about a, a business model where they have stripped tens of thousands of people out of their business model, out of their industry, just in recent years. On that
1: note, a lot of the stuff we talked about has been in previous draft versions of this legislation that, as you point out, is stalled. You've criticized Congress repeatedly for not bringing this bill forward in the Senate or the House. You've talked about the power of the rail industry is a big part of that. What can you do as the highest ranking transportation official in this country to push back
9: on that rail lobby pressure? Well, we've used our rulemaking authority to advance things, like having a minimum of two people uh, on board these trains. Even that has gotten enormous pushback from industry. But we will continue using the authorities that we have, whether it's the inspections, the enforcement, uh, or the convening power, just sitting down with workers and with, uh, with labor leaders and being one of the few people in this country who railroad CEOs seem to be willing to call back. And it seems like this country goes through a cycle, where there will be an incident, a tragedy, Then there will be a response, tougher regulations, more enforcement, stronger laws. And then it'll get watered down under pressure from the railroad industry, which through American history has famously been one of the most adept Mm -hmm. at getting its way with Congress. And while it's one thing to imagine the old days of the robber barons and, you know, black and white photos of of these uh, railroad leaders, it's important to understand that those dynamics are true in the 21st century as well. Fewer
1: mustaches, though.
9: Fewer mustaches, fewer beards just as much power.
1: In East Palestine, we found a lot of divides within the community. People who feel like they are still currently in danger because of the chemical exposure. People who feel like this has been overblown and it's time to move forward. What if anything can the federal government do to help address that type of environment in a specific community that has been upended due to a transportation accident?
9: Well, I think part of it is for the people who live in that community to know that everything they went through led to change, that you know nothing can take back what happened when that Norfolk Southern train went off the tracks that night, but that real action can come out of that, and that's part of how we can honor the people of that community. Frankly, it was clear, especially in the weeks after that disaster, that a lot of people were interested in using the people of East Palestine. And they, they saw that. They're smart. They, they felt that. I could sense that when I was on the ground. That's why it's so much more important than ever, a year later, after most of the cameras packed up and most of the politicians went on to other things, for them to know that we're still acting. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.
1: Black voters helped lift President Biden and Vice President Harris into the White House three years ago. And one big question for this political season is whether black voters and young voters will show up again this November across the country with the same strength they did in 2020. Today, we get a clue as South, as South Carolina votes in the state's first-in-the-nation Democratic primary. My co-host Juana Summers is there and brings us this story.
5: We met Cambrell Garvin near a massive construction site just off a long stretch of highway.
7: Tell us about where we are right now outside outside this job site. Absolutely, so welcome to Blythewood, small town just outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And we're at outside of, on the street corner of the Scout Motors plant. Which is a multi billion dollar investment here in South Carolina. And more-
5: 32 years old, he's a Democrat representing Richland County and South Carolina State House. And the vast stretch of land behind us will one day be home to a $2 billion Scout Motors electric vehicle plant. Garvin said it's expected to bring 4,000 new jobs to the area.
7: So the Biden administration, uh, through their Inflation Reduction Act, uh, really gave uh, manufacturers, EVs, uh, uh, those companies, um, it it really gave them an incentive to build. And and quite honestly, had it not been for the investment that President Biden made, I don't think that that this plant would be here in ruby red South Carolina.
5: It's a tangible example of what Biden's presidency has delivered to the state, a promise kept to the voters who trusted him in 2020. But some recent polling shows Biden underperforming with Black voters, particularly Black men and young voters, compared to last time. Some Democrats also worry that the high death toll in Gaza due to Israel's war with Hamas might fuel frustration among young voters, causing them to turn away from Biden. Biden has been confronted by protesters on the issue recently, including here in South Carolina. Garvin said one of the president's challenges isn't his agenda or his record. It's how the campaign communicates it.
7: So I think that there's work to be done, um, especially as it relates to President Biden coming in and really attracting people like myself, young African-American male, um, Southern. So I think it goes back to telling the story. When you tell a story and give people a reason to show up and vote, I think that they will.
5: And the story that Democrats are telling hasn't won over some of those young voters yet.
7: This is one of the first times ever in my life that I'm in the middle.
5: That's Tamandre Robinson. He's 24 and a student at Midlands Technical College. Four years ago, Robinson didn't vote, but this year he's sorting through his options and he's open to supporting a candidate from any party. He told me his top issues are college affordability, universal health care, and unity.
9: You know, am
7: I looking at a person for their character? Does character truly change America? Or does good policy change America? None of those questions are being answered. It's just choose me. No, choose me. So it's complicated.
5: We talked to him just a few days before the Democratic primary.
7: When you come to the Black community and you speak to us and you say, hey, it's our vote that you want, you, you should come with things that are going to impact and change our lives. I think the problem is saying you're going to do a thing for us and then nothing changes.
5: When Vice President Kamala Harris made her ninth trip to South Carolina as Vice President, she rallied voters at South Carolina State University in Orangeburg. Her speech, a day before the election, focused on the things the administration promised and delivered, canceling some student loan debt, lowering the cost of insulin, increasing federal funding to HBCUs like this one.
0: Who sits in the White House, it matters. And in this election, we each each one of us, we face a question. What kind of country do we want to live in?
5: And that's a message that resonated with Delacia Pickens, 18 years old and a student at neighboring Claflin University. She is voting for the first time and plans to support Biden and Harris, who are running virtually unopposed.
10: I think we, more
6: young people could be more active when it comes to voting and politics. And I feel like if we had more of options and choices, that more young people would be more involved.
5: Her friend, Janiah Morton, who's 18, says it is also about civic
7: education
5: and access to information.
7: I will say that we're not the most educated given that, you know, people don't know where to go. You had to take the steps on your own
5: to come here and learn. And that information gap among young voters is a red flag for Brandon Upson. He's the executive director of the South Carolina Progressive Network. Some of that, he said, can be attributed to the nature of the race. It's just a different landscape than in 2020.
7: It has been general knowledge that President Biden is just going to walk into the nomination. So, There's been no need to invest in communities to make sure that they know that there's a primary.
5: When it comes to reaching young voters, Upson made the case that part of the problem is strategic, where and how the message is delivered. He pointed out the fact that many young people aren't getting their news from traditional media. They are extremely online.
7: So there's a lot more uh, engagement, connection and intentionality that needs to happen uh, to Drill deep into our grassroots. That's not happening right now.
5: He's talking about voters like Naomi Harris. She's 22 and teaches at a vocational school, and she's a part of the Union of Southern Service Workers. She told me that few of her peers are excited about the primary.
7: I don't know anybody in my circle who want to vote. Like people, like they they feel like if these are the options, they don't want to. They don't want no parts.
5: <laughs> Does that worry you at all when you hear people say that they're they're just? Yeah, I hate that because it's. It's stupid. Like, our votes count. Biden allies acknowledge the lack of enthusiasm for this largely uncontested primary, and they caution against overanalyzing the results, which may not be representative of the broader Black electorate that Biden needs to win in battleground states in November. But with its new first-in-the-nation status, South Carolina's primary will give us an early sense of what young Black voters have to say this year. Juana Summers, NPR News, Columbia, South Carolina.
1: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For the second day in a row now, the U.S. has launched retaliatory strikes against Iran-linked targets in the Middle East. Today's strikes, conducted by both the U.S. and the U.K., hit targets in Yemen and those followed dozens of U.S. air and missile strikes yesterday that hit Iranian-linked targets in Syria and Iraq. All of these are a response to a drone attack by an Iran-backed militia last Sunday that killed three American service members in Jordan. Yesterday's strikes hit targets at facilities used by Iranian forces, though none of the strikes were in Iran itself. This all leads to questions about whether the Israel-Gaza war could widen into a full-blown conflict between the U.S. and Iran. We want to understand how Iran might respond to U.S. attacks, so earlier today we called up Afshan Ostavar, Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School. He's also the author of the upcoming book, Wars of Ambition, The United States, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East. I asked him what he thinks Iran will do next.
12: Well, honestly, I don't think much is going to happen in terms of what Iran does. I think Iran's proxies, particularly in Iraq, and Syria will continue to do what they've been doing, which is launching intermittent rocket attacks against US bases. It may not happen tomorrow, but it'll happen in the coming days and weeks. Iran is pretty limited in what it can do, frankly. If it does anything directly, it would trigger a war most likely with the United States and it knows this. So it works through proxies in order to keep the violence away from Iran's doorstep, but also below the threshold of war with the United States.
1: I mean, you're hearing this dual message from the president. It was in the statement that he released after these strikes were confirmed, and he said a version of it a lot, that the U.S. does not want a broader war in the Middle East, but the U.S. is going to respond when Americans are harmed. Uh, Do you think that Biden can accomplish both of those goals at the same time in the coming weeks?
12: Well, uh, yes, in the sense that the United States can respond and it can calibrate responses that are done in such a way that Iran is unlikely to respond directly. Um, That's what I think you saw in these latest strikes. There was a long lead up to the strikes. Uh, There was a long time for Iran to pull assets out of Syria and Iraq. There's no reports of Iranian military officers being killed in any of these strikes. So in that respect, I think the biden administration you know has been able to succeed in, in walking that fine line by both responding showing that the united states is going to respond with force but also keeping it below the threshold of something that might trigger uh escalatory strikes by iran
1: i mean i open talking about concerns of a broadening conflict you sound just by the tenor of your answers a little more level-headed that you think this can kind of stay as is you don't you don't see it uh, necessarily getting really out of control very quickly.
12: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, let me say this. I believe we are in a regional war and I believe we've been in a regional war for a long time. The Gaza war is one uh, spike in increasing in tempo in that regional war. But we have to remember that these strikes against US forces in Iraq and Syria were going on before the Gaza war. They were going on before October 7th. Um, What is new is the intensity. But even if the Gaza war is settled tomorrow, this underlying regional conflict, being waged by Iran and its clients and proxies, will continue.
1: That's professor and author Afshan Ostavar. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News.
4: And we thank you for spending part of your weekend with 90.9 WBUR.
10: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org
4: slash cars. I'm Susan Levy. U.S. forces have launched additional retaliatory strikes on Iran-linked targets in Yemen. This comes a day after initial strikes against targets in Iraq and Syria. You can follow this developing story at the start of each hour today on 90.9 WBUR. And stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs every Saturday night until 8. 37 degrees at 539, mostly clear skies overnight with a low in the mid-20s, a stretch of sun ahead mid-30s. Back now to All Things Considered. We're funded by
11: you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center, presenting Broadway star Jeremy Jordan in an intimate concert, February 9th and 10th. Tickets at
3: theumbrellaarts.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Some Republican governors are in Texas this weekend visiting the southern border to show support for Texas as it continues to defy a Supreme Court order to allow U.S. border agents to remove razor wire fencing. Northern Ireland has a government again two years after it collapsed. Today, lawmakers elected Michelle O'Neill as its first minister, the first Irish nationalist in that job. And Tesla is recalling nearly all of the vehicles it sold in the U.S. because some warning lights on the instrument panel are too small. The recall covers certain Model S, X, and 3 along with the new Cybertruck. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR.
1: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. 20 years ago this month, a wardrobe malfunction in the Super Bowl halftime show caused a global meltdown. If you were alive in 2004, you probably know this moment. Justin Timberlake reached across Janet Jackson's chest, pulled off one of the cups of her top, and exposed her breast to millions of viewers. The incident and the furor that followed became known as Nipplegate. Jackson took almost all of the blame for what happened that night and the moral outrage that followed. Nipplegate is one of several moments, and Jackson is one of several famous women, that author Sarah Dytum takes a critical look at in her new book called Toxic. Women, Fame, and the tabloid 2000s. It's a reassessment of a time when popular culture policed, ridiculed, and even destroyed a variety of women in the public eye. Women like Janet Jackson and women like Britney Spears, the teenage pop princess who, when she first became a superstar, was in a serious relationship with the same guy who dodged the blame for Nipplegate, Justin Timberlake.
2: An extraordinary double standard in that case, especially I mean, you have, for example, Brittany being grilled by Diane Sawyer about how many times she's had sex and two with and being reduced to tears and forced to apologize to America for having a perfectly ordinary sex life as a young woman. Versus Justin Timberlake being, you know, encouraged to basically frat boy it up on talk radio and being celebrated for, I think, in the words of a Details magazine cover line, getting into Britney's pants. This is really crass, unpleasant stuff.
1: Yeah. Broadening it out, you focus on celebrity pop culture of the aughts with a little bit of the late 90s and early teens thrown in as well through the lens of nine different women. And you call this period of time the Upskirt Decade. Why did you do that?
2: Because I think of the the Upskirt tabloid photo as, um, and this is a deservedly harsh judgment on that period, but as the kind of signature cultural product of that era, it's something that couldn't really exist yeah. before because in order to have a market in up skirt pictures, you have to have the kind of camera technology that paparazzi were able to use, which is small, light, point and click digital cameras, which can take lots of images where you can really get down in the gutter and point your camera directly up a woman's skirt to get that picture. And you also have to have a voracious, no holds barred kind of gossip media, which is willing to publish that material. And that was something that the internet made possible. So you have to have those two things mm-hmm. coming together. And at the same time, you have to have the absence of a legal framework that says this kind of material is intrusive and illegal and an invasion of privacy. And it was very um, it was very shocking to revisit this period of time and realise how few guardrails there were, not just legally, but also in terms of you know, basic behavioral standards around what was and wasn't considered publishable.
1: And then there's one thing you didn't mention there, but it's a, it's a big theme of your book and it's the tone of the coverage because mm-hmm. paparazzi would take these pictures, websites would publish them and then the tone of the coverage would, would there's Britney again showing herself for all to see, you know, framing these women as villains basically for seeking fame and seeking our attention and whatever problem they were facing at that moment was, was often framed as, like, cosmic justice for them.
2: Right. And the tenor of the commentary that went alongside these very intrusive pictures was very much they're doing it on purpose. They want to be looked at. They are, in fact, they're the ones who are inflicting this on us.
1: They're out. They want to show off this way. And, and that framing, which was so pervasive, totally ignores the existence of the websites that make money by writing about these things. And the people who are clicking on them because they want to read about and see these things.
2: Absolutely.
1: So a lot of the theme of this era was the rules of the internet being written in real time. And people not fully understanding them until they were living in them. And toward the end of the book, you compare a lot of the women that it focuses on with Taylor Swift. You point out she's only a few years younger than some of the people in this book. But by the time she becomes famous, the rules of the internet are written... And she knew what they were, and she knew how to operate in them. How much of a difference does that make for Taylor Swift on era celebrities?
2: It makes an enormous difference. I think there are two um, kind of dividing lines that I would draw um, among the women in my book in terms of you know how things turned out for them. One of them is how young they were when they became famous. And I think becoming famous when you're a child is... Awful and difficult, whoever it happens to, and in whatever era it happens to.
1: Lindsay Lohan having the most extreme version of those struggles as a child. Yeah,
2: absolutely brutal treatment of her. And if you look at the, you know, the kind of um, effectively live blogging of the size of her breasts that she was put through, um, it's indescribable. But the other one is where they were in relation to the internet so for example kim kardashian she is the same age pretty much as paris hilton but when kim starts to get famous the internet has already been established so she has a myspace before she starts to get famous the same the same as taylor swift actually had a myspace early on and that was part of the taylor swift story in the early part of her career that she was a myspace musician And i think you look at these figures who have the ability to shape their own presence on the internet and who have the ability to craft their fame rather than have it crafted for them and that's an incredible shift in power in celebrity and you look now at the way you know top tier celebrities operate and they are able to control everything they have a direct line to their fans via social media they don't have to, you know, deal with reporters if they don't want to, if they aren't going to get favorable coverage. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Taylor Swift is never going to have to sit down and do the excruciating equivalent of Brittany talking to Diane Sawyer about her sex life. That's unthinkable.
1: I, I wanna end with this question because you have now reevaluated a period of time that you live through as i lived through but is a long time ago now and you're kind of thinking through ways that things didn't age that well at all and i'm wondering if that's given you a different point of view on current events current pop culture are there things that you're seeing play out and you're thinking this is probably not going to look good 10 or 20 years down the line
2: yeah definitely a lot of the misogyny i write about that was endemic in mainstream media you don't see that in you know, reputable, quote-unquote, reputable outlets anymore. But you do still find it online, in social media. So if, for example, any listeners followed um, Megan The Stallion's testimony in the trial of Tory Lanes for shooting her in the foot, the mainstream coverage of that was correctly very sympathetic to her as a victim of violence. A lot of the social media reaction, though, was extremely hostile to her. Um, you still have a massive problem with revenge porn. We don't have a celebrity sex tape economy anymore, but we do have the issue of largely men non-consensually sharing images, the intimate images of partners. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's something that is probably going to look incredibly queasy in retrospect when when it's realised how endemic that actually was as a problem.
1: That's Sarah Dytem, the author of Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Tabloid 2000s. Thanks so much for talking to us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: It is officially Oscar season, the time of the year, between the nominations being announced and the awards actually being handed out, which means it's the season when we all pile on the Motion Picture Academy for what they got wrong or what they got really wrong. And it is also a time to reflect on the mythological power the Oscars hold on our culture. And also look at some of the great works that have been honored, or maybe haven't been honored, over the years. Between now and Oscar night, which is March 10th, we will take time each weekend to talk about our most loved and hated award show, as well as the movies that it's focused on over the years. This year, The Barbie Snub was the first Oscar conversation that seemed to grab hold of the nation, with Greta Gerwig not being nominated in the Best Director category, and Margot Robbie being passed over for her star turn as Barbie.
13: What do I have to do? You have
1: to go to the real world.
4: You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe.
10: The choice is now yours.
1: But Oscar history is full of notable absences from Oscar voters' ballots. Think of Jennifer Lopez in 2019's Hustlers.
11: We gotta start
3: thinking like these Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything.
1: Many critics called the performance the finest of her career, but despite nominations at the Golden Globes and the Screen Actors Guild, Lopez missed out on an Oscar nod. And while this year Christopher Nolan may be the frontrunner to win Best Director for Oppenheimer, he missed the director's lineup altogether for his 2008 superhero epic, The Dark Knight. Why so serious? That film was also passed over for a Best Picture nomination, which helped spur the Academy to expand the number of nominees in the category, which is one way that perhaps an Oscar snub can be a good thing long term. To talk about some of these cases, as well as the Oscar snubs, we can still not get over. We brought in Aisha Harris, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, as well as culture writer and podcaster Jordan Cruciola. Hey to both of you. Hello. Hello. We mentioned J-Lo and Hustlers. The Dark Knight. Um, what are some other famous snubs, or oration maybe snubs that, that you're still bothered by?
6: Well, I want to flash back to the night of the Oscars in 2019, when Spike Lee finally won his first competitive Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for Black Klansman.
7: Jolly Wachtell, David Rabinowitz, and Cameron Wilmot, and me,
8: Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there.
6: Now, that is not a snub, clearly, he won. But my thing is that we have to flashback even earlier to when Do the Right Thing, his magnum opus, this crowning achievement of his career, went home empty-handed. Now, Danny Aiello was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He lost to Denzel and Glory that's okay. Spike Lee lost out to Tony Shulman for uh, Dead Poets Society in the original screenplay category. My big issue with this is the fact that Do the Right Thing was not even nominated for Best Picture that year, or Director. And, you know, instead driving this Daisy won Best Picture, and we all know how frustrating that is. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I like about the fact that a few years later, um, Spike Lee filing one is that that award for Black Klansman felt like sort of a culmination of his entire career.
1: So Jordan, Do the Right Thing being passed over is is one of the all time mm-hmm. blunders. Is there anything that you think about that maybe isn't in that that Hall of Fame reel of Oscar screw-ups?
13: I, I want to tell you two things. One that I, like my favorite snub, like historically viewed as a snub, is Kevin Costner winning Best Director for Dances with Wolves over Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas. <laughs> and I honestly, like I love that because yeah. you know what? Kevin wasn't going to win that again. Like, when when was Kevin Costner going to win Best Director again? But when could Martin Scorsese win Best Director? Maybe every other year. And when he finally did, yeah. it was a similar Spike <laughs> situation where it feels like a, and now, Mr. Scorsese, we honor your lifetime decades of work. But he's sort of like a Merrill figure where, like, any given thing he does could be nominated and could compete to win. So I think, yeah, you know what? Good for Kevin, good for Kevin. Hey,
1: the postman, the postman or Waterworld could have. If
13: we lived in a world where Kevin Costner was a two time <laughs> best director winner for the Academy Awards and Martin Scorsese had won, <laughs> like that would be a whole different framing of this conversation and lol. But the one I'm still <laughs> bitter about, and I know it hasn't been that long, but like, the, I don't know that the bitterness will ever go away from me. LaShawna Lynch should have been nominated for best supporting actress for the woman King. Yeah. Your family was cruel. As was my mother. It is enough to make you cry. But it is better to laugh. The Woman King should have been nominated for a host of Academy Awards, and it was not. That movie did really strong numbers at the box office, got phenomenal critical reviews. Lashana Lynch was so powerful and compelling in that movie. Like, when that... I didn't think it was, like, a likely thing to happen, but it's being overlooked for, like, the whole run of the awards march was something that still, like, personally stings to me today. Mm -hmm. So on the scheme of, like, outside historic overlooking, I think the LaShawn Lynch overlooking for the Woman King is a true crime of Mm -hmm. awards voting.
1: And I know know we're talking more about nominations here, but I feel like, honestly, not a month goes by where I don't have a conversation about about Crash beating out... beating out Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture.
13: Well, and, and also that year was, it was like, oh, it beat Brokeback Mountain. It also beat Capote. It also beat Munich. It also beat, *Good* I think, like, Good Night and Good Luck. like I remember what somebody asking me, movies. what do you think? Yeah, they are like, what do you think will win Best Picture this year? My answer to everyone was literally, oh, anything but Crash. <laughs> anything but Crash.
6: Yeah, I mean, but again, the thing about Crash winning is that, like, now it has, it, it may have the Oscar, but it does have, also the reputation now of being the one that like one of the most undeserving wins and yeah. obviously Brokeback Mountain* stands up all of those other movies stand up in the test of time in a way that Crash never could and never will mm-hmm. so. Try to look on the bright side, you know.
13: (laughs) (laughs) A snub that lets everybody know how bad a movie really was because we just keep talking about it every year. Exactly. Do
1: either of you see any trends to what the Academy gets wrong?
13: I mean, you got there are a lot of people who aren't white contenders, so it's probably going to come up short. Like, I feel like that's still the drumbeat of the Academy Mm -hmm. Awards. It's, I feel like things are, you know, there's incremental moves toward that being less the case, but eh, that's still the case to me, cut and dry.
6: Yeah, I mean, this year, I mean, to be honest, this year, I don't really have that much to complain about. I, I think we do have, like, you have Lily Gladstone, you have Coleman Domingo, Daniel Brooks all being nominated. There's, there are other POC who have been nominated in this, mm-hmm. these categories as well. But it's not even just about that. It's about the types of movies that are often overlooked or or at least uh, don't get nominated in the categories that you would expect them to. It's often the movies that are the historical dramas, the war movies that get all the attention. That, I think, is that sort of trend that we often see that's kind of annoying to see, but is the way Oscars are going to Oscar?
1: That's Aisha Harris, a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, as well as Jordan Cruciola, a culture writer and the host of the podcast Feeling Seen on Maximum Fun. Thanks so much to both of you.
13: Thank you very much. Thanks.